Hey everyone, we're back with another episode of Find Your Film. This is not actually the weekly episode. We're doing a hodgepodge, and this is interesting because we've kicked the can on the Samuel Fuller film called The Big Red One for the last three weeks, and now we're actually going to spend a little bit of time talking about the movie, whether it's worth your time. The Samuel Fuller, in my opinion, classic, is worth your time. The review will be spearheaded by Eric Holmes and Bruce Perky. I really want to hear what they have to say about this movie. And actually, it's going to be really interesting because there are two versions of The Big Red One. Eric and Bruce will talk about the theatrical cut and whether it's even worth watching in theaters. But then we're going to quickly talk about The Big Red One. The big meat behind this hodgepodge, however, is an interview which Eric anchored earlier in the week. Eric Holmes, can you tell our listeners what you did this week as far as interviews go? Yeah, I got to interview um, the uh, director of a documentary called Young Plato. It's about a teacher who's got uh, unconventional teaching methods, but I think they're effective teaching methods. And overall, I really, I really love the documentary. And I was uh, really happy to talk to the director, uh, Nisa, and the subject of the documentary, uh, Kevin, uh, the teacher. Kevin McAreevy. Yeah. Yeah, and it was uh, it, it was a good time. I I, I gotta say, um, the uh, I sometimes I forget what day it is, and my uh, brain kind of uh, goes away. I'm like, oh, that's gonna be tomorrow, and I wake up and I oh shit, that's it. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I was a little punchy uh, at the beginning of the interview, but um, I, I I think I got some good questions in. We got some uh, good conversation going during the interview, and. The uh, Kevin McAreevy, he's he's just a he's just a really good guy, and I think a lot of uh, schools would do well to have a teacher like him in there. So it, it was good to talk to him. We'll be reviewing Young Plato on our main feature on our main episode this week. So check it check this out for the, another another part of our feed for Find Your Film episode. I don't know what it is. I'll have to look at it on our Google Doc. Bruce, I'm thinking episode 135. Bruce Perky, what do you think? Is that well, correct? 134. Ah, <laughs> oh, jeez. Okay, so you can actually check out episode 134 of Find Your Film this week to check out our full review of Young Plato. Now, specifically, Young Plato will be available in theaters in New York September 23rd at the Angelica or Angelica. I don't know how to pronounce it, but the, let's just say the Angelica Film Center in New York on September 23rd. The big date, however, for Young Plato, this documentary, again, headlined by Kevin McAreevy. And this this, um, this documentary is set in North Belfast at a school, I believe it's called Holy Cross for Boys, if I'm not, yep. if I'm not mistaken. Okay, very cool, Eric. And But anyways, for September 30th, a lot of you people who listen to us over at Find Your Film may be able to catch, catch Young Plato in theaters as well. It's going to be playing in D.C., Dallas, San Diego, Sacramento, another part of Texas, Fairfax, Virginia, a bunch of other cities. And we'll be talking about the full review, whether or not Young Plato, regardless of Irregardless, disregardless, or regardless of whether Eric Holmes did the interview, whether unbiasedly, whether you should actually watch Young Plato as a documentary in theaters, full review will be on our episode. Now, speaking of reviews, let's get to The Big Red One. The Big Red One is a movie that's highlighted, spotlighted by Samuel Fuller, his own experiences in World War II, and this has been his dream project for most of his life. I wouldn't consider it a tragedy, but it's actually a success story because finally towards the end of his life, within the last 20 years, he was able to finally make The Big Red One absolutely at a shorter budget than he was originally promised. I forgot what the original budget was, like something like around the ballpark figure of maybe he was promised $10 million and he ended up shooting it for $4 million. 
I remember though a couple or about a month and a half ago, Bruce, um, he spotlighted Samuel Fuller's film, The Steel Helmet. And one thing that we really loved about The Steel Helmet was how Samuel Fuller was able to make use with whatever little budget he had. He shot parts of the movie or a big part of the movie in California. And you're thinking The Steel Helmet does not look like a movie that was shot in some kind of backlot in LA. We were very, very impressed by The Steel Helmet. Now, I'm just wondering whether The Big Red One, which was released, I believe, in 1980, it runs, the theatrical cut runs one hour and 53 minutes, 1980 film written and directed by Samuel Fuller. It stars Lee Marvin, Mark Hamill, and Robert Carradine. Ultimately, this centers on a group of, it's an infantry unit known as The Big Red One, headlined, led by Lee Marvin and his troops. Robert Carradine is a character who actually is the de facto version, the movie version of Samuel Fuller's character. Robert Carradine plays Private First Squad Zab, which is basically Private Samuel Fuller, as you can see in the movie he where he actually dons a, actually uses a cigar. And Samuel Fuller, if you know anything about him, he loved his cigar. So this is pretty much, even though it's a World War II epic, it is a semi autobiographical account of Fuller's experiences in World War II, going to different parts of World War II as well. Let's start off with Eric Holmes regarding The Big Red One, your overall thoughts. Is it worth it to actually rent? Was it worth your money renting it? Renting it? Yeah, yeah, de- definitely. Um, I Actually, this movie was a lot funnier than I expected it to be. Uh, the, the, there's, there's, I mean, it's a war movie, so there's going to be harrowing things. Uh, there's definitely going to be suspense. Um, and I, I don't think we're, I, I don't know if we're going to get into spoilers or not, but there's a part towards the end with, uh, Mark Hamill in a, uh, area that was really kind of well, chilling to watch. Uh, no, you we, can say that the, the ending is it's set in a concentration camp. You can say that because yeah, it, yeah. Clips, so, yeah. so, uh, that, there were, there was that part that was, uh, there was a scene there that was really chilling. Uh, but there's a lot of levity in this. Um, there's, uh, like the, the part, um, the, uh, pregnancy part <laughs> was, uh, nor- normally I guess could have, uh, in reality, that part probably would have been, uh, you know, kind of, uh, kind of an issue, uh, kind of a dramatic part, but they kind of played it, uh, kind of played it almost as a comedy just cause they kind of didn't know what they were doing. Um, well, there's a pregnancy and it's inside a tank. If I, if you recall, yeah, what, okay, yeah. so. Uh, but yeah, that, so I, I, I appreciated that they were able to add some levity into an otherwise terrible situation. Uh, just war is not, you know, kind of like mash, I guess, war is not funny, but there's, there's some, you know, there's some funny to be had sometimes, I guess, uh, that probably just sounds terrible of me to say, but anyway, yeah, big red one was, uh, I, I, I think this was kind of a full meal of a movie it, it kind of had a little bit of everything and as far as war movies go this is this is a really good one I, um i i've never seen it up until you know we watched it for the podcast all those many months ago <laughs> but uh this is uh the i i think this is a classic that kind of deserves its status uh because it, it it holds up to today and it's pretty dang good Pretty dang good. Again, this movie is only about 113 minutes. This here's a sad part about it. The Sammy Fuller died, not just actually in a in a weird way. Just well, I'm being a little bit bittersweet. Actually, his dream movie was released by Warner Brothers, 113 minutes. But he had, 
I think a four hour cut of this movie. So years later, but back, I think in 2004, a reconstructed cut was released. Not a director's cut, a reconstructed cut. So this, and oh wait, actually this, the original one that Bruce and Eric saw theatrical is 153 minutes. The cut that I've seen, the cut I only know is the reconstructed cut, which was released in 2004 as a DVD. And that runs about 47 minutes longer. So I, this is as, even though Eric said it's a solid recommend, it's a good movie. This movie with the extra 47 minutes would have loved to, to have seen their thoughts on the, the reconstructed cut. Cause this is regarding full meals. The big red one reconstructed is a totally full meal to the point of gluttony. Now, Bruce, Eric liked it. What did you feel about? How did you feel about this movie? Yeah, I liked it quite a bit too. Um, I kind of had to slowly work my way into its kind of style and rhythm though i think part of the problem and i could see this being a big barrier of entry for people who are um especially younger that haven't watched very many older war movies because i mean i think of movies from this time era as like uh you know apocalypse now and platoon very slick you know war movies that have a certain kind of a feel and look to it and this hot shots yeah, right. well, yeah, hot shot, sure. <laughs> more, more part do, but <laughs> Invasion USA, top secret, yeah, those kind okay. of things. Right. Um, but <laughs> yeah, top secret's the World War II version, yes. <laughs> um, but I was thinking as I was watching it, like this, he feels more like a '70s movie, and part of it is we're talking about the budget. You kind of have that that really crisp, blown out sound, and the kind of uh, it, at, at the way that the, the the voices are kind of kind of almost uh, overdubbed in and it felt very seventies ish to me as far as the style goes. And then the other thing I had to kind of get into was this kind of, I don't know what you call it, like um, fragmented kind of almost vignette style. So the basic thing people need to know about this movie is it starts in, I want to say Algiers, if I remember correctly. Okay. Um, it starts there and you think like, okay, this is going to be in North Africa and there's going to be a big thing in North Africa. And there is for a while and then we go somewhere else. So they basically are following their entire career in the war through all these different theaters of conflict. And Normandy. as you're going, yeah, you get Normandy, you get Italy. So you really get the feel of, you know, these, these four or five troops that are with uh, Lee Marvin's character, which I think is just called the sergeant or something like that. <laughs> You really get the feel of kind of how they get beaten down, how they get kind of jaded, how they become um, not really willing to connect with the newer people because they assume they're going to just be cannon fodder. So, And there's lots of stuff like that. But that also leads to the kind of gallows humor, too, because as they become more and more seasoned, certain things don't affect them the way they did right off the bat. And now they're they're seeing the world and the war in a different way, and we are, too. So I would say that... For most people getting into this, it might give it a little time, get into the rhythm, get into the flow, and then you'll start to see it like as almost like chapters in a book is kind of how I saw it. Like, oh, we're in a new chapter. Now we're in the Italy chapter, you know? So, and I, I really started really digging it. I would say after about 30 minutes, it really kind of sunk its its hooks into me. And I, I was along for the ride really at that point a lot. So, Eric, did you have to, you had one? Yeah. Yeah. I was wanting to bring up the, the beginning because it, it starts off with, um, uh, was it Lee Marvin's character? Uh, he goes back and he's talking to a guy. And it's like, oh yeah, I just killed someone. And it's like the war's over. And it's like, right. Well, when, when did he kill the guy? About an hour ago. The war ended four hours ago. So like he didn't have to kill that guy. So that's kind of a thing that's hanging over his head. Yes. And then they kind of book in that uh, similar situation at the end of this 
Um, but Greg, I kind of wanted to ask you because you saw the you saw the fuller version. Eric, you, you can't said, ask me anything right now because you're wearing a cinematic shirt. We're doing the Find Your Film podcast, so strike three on you. <laughs> Thank you for wearing the cinematic. Very good. <laughs> Anyways, go ahead. I'm sorry, Eric. I but uh, but you were uh, of the three of us. Uh, um, I think you're the only one that saw the full version. And I think you said in our chat that they kind of uh, they kind of lean on that more on the on the uh, on the fuller uh, right. The fuller that's a great version, question. But yeah, the, the longer mm-hmm. version. Um, what what are some of the things of the the reconstructed cut that kind of I guess maybe resonate more um, by watching the extra forty five minutes? You get to see with the well, listeners. With if you actually purchase the DVD. Go at your local, you know, Eric has his entertain mart, Bruce Perky, what over in Alabama? Do you have a entertain mart? What's, what's your, what's your locale? What's your thing? Um, second and Charles is probably your closest to that. Second and Charles or look, if you go to Amazon, go to Amazon DVD reconstructed cut, the big red one. Hopefully it's cheap. Purchase it. To answer your question, Eric, you get more of a feeling of the German side in the World War II conflict. The uh, the opening where you talk about uh, Lee Marvin kills someone and he realizes the war was over. He kills a surrendering German at the at the shadow at the end of World War World War One. Essentially, he kills someone just probably in self defense and uh, self survival. But he, he was he made a mistake. He made him when he he actually realized someone told him that the war was over. So that ends as a bookend with the ending of World War Two at the end of the Big Red One. That's not too much of a spoiler whatsoever. The reason why I wanted you guys to review this is for our listeners, the Big Red One, my fear is the actual digital version that you guys either purchased on YouTube or movies in anywhere, whatever digital, did it feel like 113 minutes? It, although it's a good movie, it's not a masterpiece because it kind of felt fragmented. I wanted to throw it to you guys because that's that's a big answer. What you get with... 167 minutes of the reconstructed cut is a real meal that I feel is great. And I just feel that you guys didn't get a full meal. So what did you guys think? It Was it a big meal for for uh, you guys? Did, you, um, did it feel fragmented or cut a little bit? I, I'll, so recently I watched all the, the Lord of the Rings movies, the extended cuts. Um, and I won't get into Lord of the Rings, but I, I've seen the theatrical cuts of all of them and then watched the extended cuts. And in some ways, the extended cuts was like, oh, you could probably trim that, trim that, so on and so forth. But overall, the stories, I think, remain the same. Um, with the cut of the big red one, I kind of felt similar without having seen the the reconstructed cut of the big red one. I felt I didn't feel like I missed anything. Okay. I, the, only, the only thing that makes me think I missed something was what you're telling me. Because you tell me stuff that is in the reconstructed cut, and it's not that I feel that I that I miss out on the story. I'm just interested in going back and seeing, oh, what was that about? Because I was so invested in what I already saw that it seems like the reconstructed cut is like, oh, there's there's more candy inside this couch cushion. <laughs> Go see if we can dig that out too. Right, Bruce. The, did not having the candies in the couch cushion did that was that a deterrent from you maybe rating this movie to maybe good to very good to excellent and transcendent? Um, I don't. Yeah, I don't think so. Once again, I don't have the absolute context to know. Like, I don't know if I see it and go like, "Oh my gosh, I did miss it," and I I would have liked it even better. I liked it quite a bit. So, I guess to me, um, it didn't really feel fragmented, but it felt um episodic. 
So, and I think that fits for what's happening because the idea is that every time they go to a new place, they're new to the place. You're, it's like you're walking into a story that's already happening, which is essentially what they keep doing. And they bring some of their own story with it. But every time you go to this new place, there's a new story. So there's the whole thing with like, um, there's a kid trying to, you know, bury his, is his mom, right? Yeah. If I remember correctly. And he's got yes. her in a car, he's got in a cart and he's carrying her around and he joins up with them. And, and that's a whole little subplot that comes in. And the movie is full of those kind of things. And they all are kind of transient, but they all kind of uh, compile on these characters' psyches to build what's happening to them. And the same way it builds on what's happening to us. And so I took those all as, as just kind of adding to the whole. And I didn't feel fragmented any more than I would with any story where you're, you're going to new places, meeting new people constantly. It's one of those kind of movies, like a traveling movie, you know, those movies where they're like on a journey and they're meeting new people and new stories as they go on a journey. This is essentially one of those kind of movies. Um, And I also felt like each time you saw one of those, I trusted the filmmaker and the writer in this case, Samuel Fuller, because it seemed like they were real stories. So even though I didn't quite understand what was going on, it felt like it had that uniqueness that felt to me like, okay, this is something he's actually seen. This weird little thing that's happening. I'll give a perfect example. Yeah. Early on, there's a big column of tanks coming towards them and they all dig holes. They all dig holes and they get in the holes and the tanks kind of roll over the holes and I was a little confused when I saw that because they were all yelling as the tanks rolled over the holes. I was like, are they dying? But then they don't die. And then I was like, that's weird. What? What is that? That seems right, but that's weird. And then I looked up the trivia on it and, and Samuel Fuller said, yeah, I mean, they could never make noise during the war because if they did, they'd give their, their location away. But that was the one time in real life this happened. At the one time when the tank was rolling over them, it was so loud that they knew they could just let out all the yells and anger and, and stress and no one would ever hear it. And I was like, cool. The movie is full of that, that kind of stuff. That is so cool. I, I, I literally thought they died. And I, was, I yeah. actually wondered what was going on. Thank you for that trivia. Information. Speaking of information, do you feel like – I think you kind of just answered the question. But do you think the lay viewer will see the Big Red One and say, oh, well, this is another war movie? Or, Eric, or to you guys, do you think they're going to say, wow, this is a lot more nuanced than – it's not just a screenwriter – research going to the library and digging up books on the war it's actually from a real do you think that this movie has an authentic feel to it because fuller was actually in the is there a direct translation that's what i'm wondering i don't know about authenticity because i've never been to war but my thoughts on this i think this works better is like uh you watch it and then you reflect on it because I, i reflect on the movie and i remember moments i remember the moment of um them that there was a the tank inside that that house thing um and then how they go through that uh i remember the uh the girl putting flowers in uh lee marvin's helmet i remember um the scene with robert carradine being kind of a little bit of a creep sometimes <laughs> you know i i i definitely remember uh two specific things with uh mark hamill in the in that cave that they were in early on yeah and then definitely uh mark hamill that that scene at the in the uh ovens at uh, the concentration camp uh yeah. was really and so there so i i don't remember like the movie like as a whole but I just remember like these kind of couple moments. And then when I, when I 
go back and think about them, like a lot of good movies I see when I think about moments like that, they feel almost, they feel more like memories than they do of a scene from a movie I saw. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's the best way to remember a movie. When you, you don't have to re- really remember a lot of the details, but the fact that there are sequences in the movie that uh, continue to reverberate uh, for you. I, for me, when I was a kid, I saw actually, I think it was, um, <laughs> Bruce, you'll understand this. I, I think it, maybe Lee Marvin was on the Mike Douglas show and he showed a clip from the big red one. And there's a scene where they're trying to get a, a ammunition pipe or something, a bomb pipe through the sands. Oh, I think yeah. it was in, in Normandy. And then the problem with that is every single person who's tr- trying to connect the pipe, there is like a, a what a bunker with a, a with a machine gun trying to gun them down. And each one of them are getting killed and killed. Yeah. And I remember as a kid, maybe I was eight or nine years old, well, nine years old, watching that scene from the Mike Douglas show. And I go, I... My gosh, Luke friggin' Skywalker is might die in the Big Red One <laughs> as a kid. As a kid, it just scarred me, and it wasn't until years later I was able to see, to see the Big Red One. So going back to Eric Holmes's point, it's not about like you know he doesn't remember all every single nook and cranny, but there are moments in this movie that just stick with you. Do you attach to that fact too, Bruce? Like there there are yeah. things that. And that's kind of what I was speaking to you. Like the moments, I, they feel authentic because they feel individual. Like they feel like someone is writing something that they've seen. They don't feel like um, a generalized written version of war. And in a, in a strange way, if you take out all the technical proficiency that you get in um, Saving Private Ryan, right? This movie, okay, this is going to sound very weird to say this. This is the better version of that movie. It maybe is not the technically better version of that movie. It's not the, you know, doesn't have the all that technical proficiency and slickness of the Normandy invasion and all that stuff. But essentially, it's almost like with Saving Private Ryan, he was trying to make this movie, but he didn't have the actual stories to do it. And I think if we talk about those moments, right? <laughs> Listeners, subscribe to our Cinematics YouTube channel because Bruce Perky <laughs> just put the clip of the week. Is the Big Red One better than Saving Private Ryan? Ha- dash, find your film podcast. And if you have any really bad things to say, Eric and I, we will support Bruce Perky uh, from, from miles away, but we will give you the personal email of Bruce Perky so you control him. <laughs> Look, I like Saving Private Ryan, but so the kind of moments we're talking about, right? There aren't as many to me in Saving Private Ryan. You got the, if you take away the whole opening Normandy thing where everyone looking at says like, okay, that's great. It's just like bravura filmmaking, right? An action set piece. Of course. Take that away. You take that away. And one of the other things people always remember is the moment where the German soldier slowly yes. kills the guy. Right. This movie is full of those kind of moments. Maybe not those kind of moments as far as that like horrificness of it, but those kind of individual really particular moments that feel like, well, like Eric said, I think it was a really wise thing that Eric said was like memories because these are memories, right? (laughs) These are memories. They might be slightly altered, but this is just basically a collection of his memories from the war in most cases. Eric, Eric, are you going to save the, Oh wait, Eric! Can you save the can you save the video because I secretly uh, I'm backing up Bruce on this. I, I prefer it over Saving Private Ryan. Can you rebut and say no? This uh, you prefer Saving Private Ryan over the Big Red One? So you can put a little bit of commercialism into that clip. I I would argue that because this does have an Omaha Beach scene. I I believe that's an Omaha Beach yes. scene in this. Yes. I I would argue that this one's better than Saving Private Ryan. I think Saving not Private Ryan feel, feels more realistic. Okay, cool. But 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 this one. Like, they okay, well, they give everyone numbers. 
Okay, you're number one. Go. Dead. Okay, number two. Oh, fuck. All right, go. They get a little further. Dead. Yes. Okay, number three's up. Number three already died. Number four, go up. Yeah, fuck, god damn it. Yeah. I don't mm-hmm. want to go. I don't want to go. I will fucking kill you right now if you don't go. Yes. Right? And was that, it that, in the that, real... That that whole scene, I I think Saving Private Ryan, what Steven Spielberg did there with the, with the scene, that whole scene in general, was probably more realistic. But I think that what Samuel Fuller did in that same context was felt a lot more emotionally resonant. Like you okay. were you you were in there with the soldiers. Like oh, I, I I gotta do this. I do not want to do this. Like you felt their fear. And you knew that they had to do the thing, but maybe I don't care about the thing. And Lee Marvin's holding the gun to me, so I there's have nothing, to do the thing. Yeah, you're going to have to do that. There's not, you have no other choice. Now, speaking of choices, Bruce, you wanted to jump in. You wanted to say something. I apologize for that. Well, I was going to say, I think in that scene, I could be wrong about this, but I think that scene in real the real world, I think Samuel Fuller was basically, in that moment, was the... Um, Mark Hamill character. I think oh, he had. Goodness. I think he had to do that. And oh, I think geez. that thing is. If I remember correctly, I think that thing's called. I want to say a Bangalore. Okay. Which essentially what it is. I don't know if you caught what it was. Essentially, they assemble a big long pipe, and then they push a bunch of dynamite up it, a bunch of explosives right. into the pipe, so right. they can push the explosives way up the beach ahead of them and explode the line of like uh, barbed wire and stuff out of the way. And they actually show a little bit of that in Saving Private Ryan, but it's just kind of really done as like, like they do it and it works. They don't make it the actual crux of the, you know, the, the tension that you get in this movie. So uh, I think we're all in agreement. Oh, yeah, we're it's all the better movie. movie. <laughs> Sorry, Stephen. It, it, <laughs> failed. It's kind of like, it's kinda like uh, <laughs> think, think of it like this with uh, Saving Private Ryan is the forest. And the right. big red one is the trees. We get to focus on this little Very bit, good. which kind of oh. informs the. So I, I, not to say one's better than the other, but you just think, said that. I, 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 just... I, I, I know I did, but I, I'm allowed I'll, to change I'll, my mind. I'm human. I'm good. Gonna adjust, okay, you're human. Just hey. Eric's. Eric's. I'm going to adjust it. Um, saving Private Ryan. Saving Private Ryan is the Forest Gump. Okay. You're, okay. No, Eric, Eric. Eric was saving. Eric was saving the video. I apologize, Eric. You're amending I, I, your I judgment. Think, I, I think they're. I think they're both different. Out. Uh, it's like when you read a book. You have first person and third person. Third. Sure. Both are. Both are. Both work. Both are valid, but both give different context to a similar thing. Uh, what uh, hearing one story in third person is going to give you a t- different context in the third person. And I think. Uh, like saving private Ryan's kind of third person because it's the backing up and watching the whole battle play out. Whereas the big red one, we're focusing on this little tiny thing. And then we get to uh, see that. And I think, I mean, look, look, it's not a contest. They're both good movies. So very, yeah, very good are. movies. Watch, watch them both. Well, one of them has Luke Skywalker and one doesn't. So exactly. What's the one with the Jedi? <laughs> right. Let me watch the one with the Jedi. Now, speaking of which, let's go to ratings for the Big Red One. I'm biased. This is, for me, Samuel Fuller is right up on the ranks of, you know, Brian freaking De Palma. So, you know, my rating is five stars out of five stars, not a negative 3,000 for 3,000 years along. This is plus 3,000 stars. Five stars for me. But let's go to the realistic stars regarding uh, this movie, regarding the Big Red One. Let's go first with you, Bruce, your rating for the Big Red One. Well, this is one of the really weird movies where as I was watching it, I was starting to write down a, a rating, which I don't usually do. And I started writing down three and a half. And then I got about an hour and 
15 minutes in, I wrote, we're like, oh, it's, this is four or four and a half. And I started, scratched it out and started writing it. And then I got to that final, I don't oh. know, 20 minutes. And I was like, okay, it's five stars. Sorry. <laughs> so five stars. <laughs> five stars from Bruce. Eric Holmes. Yeah, I'm kind of, I don't know if five stars is accurate, but this is definitely uh, uh, earns its, as Bruce says, this earns its classic status. So okay. I, I, I'll, I'll go four and a half for you, maybe four and a half for you, Eric. No, no, the, the, this would be five stars because uh, also like we at, at this point because we kind of push it back a couple times. At this point, it's been like over a month, and I'm still like a bunch of the scenes still stick with me. Okay, and I I think and and this movie's a classic too. Like a, a bunch of people, you know, bring it up. You know, Matt Stillman, I mean, our buddy Matt Stillman over at Cinematics Facebook yeah. Group, he loves it. I, he saw both of them. He did a better job than we did. He saw both yeah. of them in one weekend. I think. Why, so. why isn't he here? <laughs> We don't like Matt Stillman too much. That's why, Matt, you know, know, uh, we love you. Yeah, this is a movie that I think earns its classic status. And so I think five stars is more than fair. I think that's great news. I was worried about what Eric and Bruce were going to give this. I I thought maybe that they would both give it a a solid three and a half to four star recommendation. It is heartening for me to actually see that they gave the theatrical version five stars. I may have to actually watch the theatrical version because I've seen the reconstructed cut. And um, yeah, I'm giving that five stars. So hopefully if I track down a couple of those reconstructed DVDs, I'm going to send both Bruce and Eric the DVD versions. And maybe not that they ever have time because we have to watch six or seven movies every week, but eventually, hopefully they'll have the reconstructed cut in their collection and they can watch it at their leisure or how I like to say with my great Poupon mustard at their leisure. So that is the Big Red One. And now we're, we're, we're done with our hodgepodge. Anything you want to say before we go right into your interview with these young Plato filmmakers and Kevin McCarney? Yeah, yeah. Uh, just uh, ch- check out Young Plato. I oh goodness, uh, we'll, we'll probably get into him more in the review. But I think uh, Young Plato is a good documentary on a person that should probably be documented and that a lot of people should know about. And I think I think there's a lot to be learned from his uh, teaching st- teaching style. Okay. Um, and also, I think there's some certain thing. I, I get into it in the interview, but I think there's reasons why we might not have that here in America, okay. at least in certain places, if that makes sense. One thing I learned from watching Young Plato is there's only one philosophy in this world that works, and it's mine. I don't know if I got the right, <laughs> right read. Bruce, did I get the right read on Young Plato, or did I? should I watch it again, maybe? what? That's absolutely the philosophical way of approaching things. Okay, My way listen, or the highway. <laughs> don't listen to me or Bruce. Listen to Eric Holmes with this wonderful interview with For Young Plato right now. Uh, thank you two for showing up. I, I guess uh, the the uh, NASA with with you. Um, what what uh, got you uh, started with this documentary to begin with? Um. It was it was my co-director Declan McGrath. He's a Belfast-based filmmaker. He was the person who heard about Kevin McAreevy and and the wonderful work that he was doing at Holy Cross Boys. So Declan introduced me to Kevin. Yeah, and Kevin, I I gotta say, um, I, I love your teaching style. Uh, one one of the things I was kind of uh, taken with was uh, um, a lot of times adults don't like to. Uh, Adults like to sugarcoat things for kids, and I think it's to their detriment sometimes. And uh, you don't do that, but uh, don't really seem to scare them either. Um, What's what's kind of your process with that? And have you got any pushback from anyone 
um, outside of uh, what we saw in the documentary? No, no, I, I haven't had any pushbacks at all. Um, I, I'm not afraid to have any conversations with any of the children, Eric. Uh, I think it's important that that uh, children are given a form to talk whatever uh, that, that they feel is topical. Uh, if death is topical, then we will talk about death. Uh, I, I spoke earlier about, um, you know, I would I would introduce uh, philosophies about framing, and it's a, you bring a video in or a story or or just a, maybe a statement or something. But um, I would tell a story about how a girl had lost her cat and how she, uh, she was so, so traumatized and so emotional and she couldn't function and. And then I said, well, has anybody, has that happened to anybody here? And, and the kids said, well, oh, I lost my cat and I wrote a wee poem. And the wee poem, any time that I feel down about my cat, I read the poem and it, it lifts me again. And then another child says, well, I lost my granny. And we went down to the beach and we wrote her name on the sand. We took loads of pictures. And whenever we learned about my granny, we look at the picture and it just lifts us all up. So this is children listening to children. Yeah, and they are learning from each other. There's a self-regulatory process going on there, and there's no real input for me apart from me telling a story about a child losing a kid. I don't give my opinion. I certainly don't moralize with them either. Um, I just let them uh, go off on 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 a road. But I I just interject with a, a question every now and again. But I think it's important that the children can have the conversation and can feel comfortable given their opinions. And as I say, if I was to moralize with them, then they're not going to. They're going to um, go into themselves and and not give their opinions. But that's that's important to to anybody listening to this that they know that. Yeah. Um. Also, uh, uh, your um, I I forget uh what her name is. Uh, she seems like your partner in the documentary or a co-teacher or co-worker. Um, is uh is everyone at the school is uh is um kind of on it seems like you guys are all on the same board where um i know in uh i have uh friends who are teachers here in america and uh as much as it could be inspired by uh what you do at uh holy cross they don't have that same kind of support that uh, it seems like you do i i think that's important that's a good point a very valid point that i can make there you know it, it's about um creating a team and about and about um making your leadership transformational. And that's what I do here. It is all about transformational leadership and, and trusting that um, when you, you, you give leadership on the people that they, they, they go and do the job and you're not always hanging over their shoulder and, and saying, oh, what are you doing? Um, you, you would give them a, a time scale and a deadline to come back and, and to tell you, you know, uh, how far they're on, how they're monitoring it, how they're evaluating it and, and what's going to be the review. So um, that's what I do here. Uh, with regards to the staff and, and and giving them all sort of responsibility and uh, letting go myself uh, of of that sort of uh, autocratic leadership that that, that not, maybe a lot of principals do have and I certainly don't have. Um, so when I when I came into uh, to to leadership, I knew that that was always going to be my way it was to build a team around me, a like-minded team who who shared a vision. Now you have to articulate a vision. Uh, before before people will come on board now when i first brought philosophy eric they were laughing they were like oh my god four-year-olds doing philosophy you're having a laugh it's never going to work and i said well okay come oh, with that, me 
I, I don't know. It, it, it feels, uh, it feels like it should almost be, uh, I, I don't know, uh, required because the, the way you do it, I mean, the, you know, people think philosophy is like the snooty thing, but you kind of break it down of, uh, here, here's the moral question. What are you going to do? And then the yeah. kids are answering it and there's no wrong answers. It's just, okay, that's, that's your morality. Let's test that. And I think that's, I think that's a wonderful thing to do. No, you're, you're, you've got it. You've got it in a nutshell, there, Eric. That's exactly it. And when you when you um, when you bring like a, a guest into the school and, and you bring him into the philosophy room and, and you set them down and you say, "Well, we're going to do philosophy," and right away they're on the back foot and they're panicking in case you ask them a question. And I'm saying, "Well, look, any chair that I go to." will be very confident and will be very assured and very articulate when everyone asks them a question. So, well, how do you get them like that? Well, you get you get them like that by what, what you continually do it. You continually put them in the form. You, you change all the things all the time, you know, and you'll always get children who will connect different philosophical things and will connect better than others. And that's why it's important to give them so much practice at it. Yeah. Uh, NASA, actually, I uh, also want to ask you, like, what was the kind of the access like? Um, I'm sure there was certain when dealing with children, I'm sure certain there's certain uh, barriers like uh, uh, just privacy issues, stuff like that. Um, what what kind of stuff like that did you have to uh, contend with? Um, yeah, no, we, of, of course, I mean, there were certain stories that we weren't able to tell and we would never be able to tell, especially it's a lot of the work that Jan Marie does as well. Um, you know, we, we wouldn't be privy to, to, uh, to go in and be part of that or to film any of that. Um, and we had always said to, to Kevin, because as filmmakers, we have to take on like the responsibility of putting a child on a screen. And then, you know, that, that, that child is forever perceived in that, in, in that sort of, in that way. So, um, we always promised Kevin that we would never leave, you know, half a narrative if, 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 you know, if we didn't get to the complete place of the issue, whatever hurdle or issue the child had to overcome, if, if that hadn't been resolved by the time we finished filming, we wouldn't, we wouldn't use that story arc. And, um, and that would be very important to us as filmmakers that we didn't do that. So we were very careful with what it was that we, we used. And then before the film was shown publicly, Jan Marie, uh, in her pastoral uh, capacity, uh, spoke to all the children and made sure that they were aware of what was in the film and made sure that they were comfortable with uh, what was portrayed of them in the film so that there were no shocks there for them. They needed to be 100% behind it. Yeah. I, have they got to uh, watch the documentary yet? And did they? Yeah, oh, no, absolutely. They, we, we, before, before it was shown publicly, we uh, showed it, we hired the cinema and um, they and their parents, and everybody came and, and, you know, the red carpet was there and uh, yeah, we made a big fuss about it. And um, so they, so the whole sort of uh, Holy Cross community got to see the film together. What about the the two cousins in the so in the documentary uh, they're constantly having uh, having uh, little problems with each other getting into fights. Um, mm-hmm. I wonder if uh, watching this documentary because sometimes like you get to step outside of your it, you very rarely get to step outside yourself, but sometimes when you do, it's like oh that's what I was doing. <laughs> I, I wonder if maybe them watching this like you know maybe uh, help things or help mend things or maybe help people see things from a position they wouldn't have otherwise. 
Well, I think Kevin's work helped them more than more than seeing themselves necessarily in the film. I mean, oh, I don't know. definitely that. Um, but um, uh, I think like they, you know, they really, I think they really enjoyed the experience. Kevin, maybe you might have a bit, bit more insight there as to how, did they talk to you about how they saw themselves on the film? Um, they, they, they walk about with their chests out. Uh, they love to see in autographs. They've, they've got girlfriends. Um, they, they are so much closer now as cousins than, than they ever were. Uh, and seeing, seeing each other on the big screen, um, they couldn't believe the anger that was in their in their faces uh, because they don't get to see that. They don't get to see the anger that, that that's, that's in their face until it was on the big screen. And, and um, that made them reflect a wee bit more on uh, how, how they would be triggered to, to different situations. So that's me, Alvis Clark, hold on. <laughs> Actually, I... I... That that I, well that reminds me of another question. Um, what was the budget on this? Because you played a lot of Elvis, and I can't imagine that would be cheap. It wasn't cheap, but I so but I I I don't think I can reveal it. But it wasn't cheap. We oh. were allowed we we had enough to cover one song, and we weren't allowed to use that song in the credits. It had to be used in the body of the film. So so, so wait, how, so how does that work? Because there was a there was a bunch of different songs in there, whether. He's seen it or is playing in the background. Does that just not count in a documentary if it's just uh, yeah, diegetic like, music or whatever? Yeah, um, yeah, the the yeah, that's that's yeah, with the with the phone rings, yes, and then with the Elvis doll, it's actually not Elvis. We found music that was similar oh. to Elvis. It's not actually Elvis that that plays, but it has the same kind of feel about it. Okay, I, I, yeah, that, I didn't know that because as I'm watching, it, I was like. Geez, is this like a hundred million dollar documentary? This, <laughs> but uh, I, I, what's I, that? I, I, you say I bought the ringtone, so so the man, you know, oh, okay. I went. Elvis sings all from my phone. Yeah. Um, so. But um, I guess uh, well, one last thing. Um, you had a uh, the. I don't know if the, I don't think this is a spoiler, but you had a, a conversation with one of the kids about um, hitting someone back, and his uh, his uh, we'll just say his parents had or his parents had a, a different opinion than yours on how to approach that, and then you were telling the kid how to speak back to his parents. How well do you know the parents? Because um, that was one of the things that kind of scared me a little bit because I know that like a. Uh, uh, I've had friends that if they went back to um, do that to their parents, their parents would, uh, it, it wouldn't end well for them. So like, how, how how well do you know their parents and are you able to coordinate stuff like that? There's, there's, there's two there, there's two ways to answer that question. I'm going to answer firstly with, I know the daddy very well. The daddy is a local chef and um, a very, very nice guy. Very, very nice guy. And uh, when they played in City Side and the kids were on the big red carpet in this big positive film and it was the whole way through about uh, using philosophy to promote mental health and well-being and as an antidote to fake news and as, as a way of controlling your emotions, this big positive spin. And then the next thing, his son stands and says, uh, oh, my daddy told me to hit, hit back. Well, his dad back seat in the cinema and he says he just slumped down the seat and went, I don't believe my son just said that. Oh, my <laughs> So, so after the movie, 
so after the movie, he came up and he and he said, he said, listen, he said that was priceless. He says that. I mean, that's just fantastic because he said, see what he said. That's what my dad told me, and that's what his dad told me. And he says, and I can nice see it wrong. Yeah, I, I, yeah, that's real helpful. Um, have you ever, have you ever had to, uh, um. Maybe it's in the documentary. Maybe it's, I, I, I don't think I saw it in the documentary, but have you ever uh, had to deal with parents that were uh, a little abusive and violent towards their kids? And then how, how would you handle something like that? Well, not, not, not I suppose that there are many child protection matters, Eric, that I can't really discuss. Uh, but, okay. Um, yeah, that makes sense. Looking at, looking at um, sort of, that aspect of it, you know, I, I could only really talk about how someone would, would respond to me outside those gates, you know. Uh, uh, boy did come and threaten me with a knife, um, you know, and, and how I dealt. Uh, more, more so than uh, anything that... Um, so more, more so that that's, that's one of the parents come up to the window there. <laughs> um, so... Uh, I could really only discuss that, but not really. Um, yes, yes, there there would be um, domestic violence situations and and uh, different things to deal with as a principal and and child protection uh, sort of stem stem from um, talking about that. But uh, I I think that um, my 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 positive message is to always use dialogue and conversation rather. Or, or balance. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree with that. Um, I think we might be done here, but uh, I really appreciate you guys coming on, and I really like the uh, documentary. And uh, Kevin, um, I've had a couple of favorite teachers over the years, and you bumped to number one, so thank you for that. <laughs> uh, I do, uh, I do appreciate your, uh, I do appreciate your love for Elvis as well. That was, that was very fun. Aspect of the uh, documentary. Brilliant. Thank you. And I'm with you. Again, you see, and now was being American, you know, these. He is the man, the greatest American ever. <laughs> <laughs>